Poddo. When I was a child, I lived in a house just outside East Grinstead. The house was called Ley House, L-E-Y House, and many of the properties in its hamlet had similar names. Ley Farmhouse, Ley Lodge, so on. Now, for those of you in tune with the Earth's currents, living in a house with Ley in its name is as on the nose as if it had been called Chakra Cottage or Mystic Manor. Leys are the entities that underpin the work of dowsers and geomancers everywhere, and ancient legends say that they convene at certain points, creating areas of unusual spiritual potency. And there's a special nexus right here, in a sleepy outpost of southern England. This is the town that didn't stare. I'm Nick Hilton. So, what are ley lines? As Graham Gardner, co-chair of the International Dowsers, explains. If people talk about ley lines, that's actually a very misleading term because it's not really uh, specific enough. Alfred Watkins, who everybody says invented the ley lines or discovered ley lines, never actually used the term. He only ever called them lays. And he's referring to them as uh, prehistoric trackways, uh, alignments of sites. And he thought they were actually trackways, despite the fact that some of them go straight up the side of a hill. Since the sort of early 70s, I think, is when ley lines started coming into use. And it's now almost universal. But um, as dozers, we don't like it, just because it's not specific enough. And some of the Alfred Watkins lays are just visual alignments across the landscape. But dozers also find these straight energy lines, which we call energy lays. Anyhow, back to my own childhood. I have a memory, though that might be too grand a term. It's really a selection of mental images that might move through time like memories, or might be quite static like fragments of a photograph. One is of a tin compass, like something out of a cracker. Another is of the window ledge in my mother's bedroom. As I remember it now, I took the compass and placed it on the windowsill there and watched as the needle span round and round like a propeller. Compasses, for those that aren't familiar, generally point north. Failing to do so would be quite a fundamental cock-up. But as the years have gone by and I've grown more interested in Intrigued by even the mysticism of the area, the belief in these lays, I've started to see the compass incident as the jumping off point for my own investigations. I lived in a house that, in its very name, was branded with the nomenclature of primal energies. As a wee lad, I had an experience that my rational mind rejects, but which I can see being played out very clearly on the stage of my brain. I think most of us are susceptible to having our memories be distorted either a little or a lot. That's the voice of Elizabeth Loftus, a professor at UC Irvine and a pioneer of research into false memories. She was one of the first people in the 1970s to design experiments to test the human capacity to create false memories. There are some people who are somewhat more susceptible than others. So so if you are somebody who tends to have lapses in memory and attention. If you're somebody who frequently can't remember, did I say that or did I just think about saying that? Did I do that or did I just think about doing that? You are somewhat more susceptible. So what I'm what I'm getting at, I guess, is that I have this memory as a child of placing a compass down and watching the needle spin round and round and round. Something that I really, the, the compass probably, probably didn't do, but it's fed into a lot of my 
impressions about this idea of magnetic forces under the ground. And I wonder whether, rationally, I think the memory is probably false, but whether I, behaviorally speaking then, I made the lie up immediately or whether it just over time I've come to believe a story that wasn't didn't actually happen or the third option that it did happen and then I'm well, well let me ask you how old do you think you were when you had this experience if it had happened I think I was probably five or six it's it's really hard to say sometimes as adults people have been led to create completely construct a memory for something that didn't happen I mean, your example, I have to say, is not an example that I've seen people want to spend time to figure out. Usually what people are trying to want to spend time to figure out is whether something traumatic happened to them in childhood. This doesn't sound particularly traumatic. And I, I haven't, in all my you know decades and decades of talking to people about their memories, I think that you're the first one I've talked to who who wants to talk about memory for a compass spinning. Okay, well, it's quite a specific thing, but it just, personally, I think that I probably wanted it to happen. And therefore, just over time, my desire for it as a child to happen had turned into a feeling that it did happen. Well, if if that's true, you would be normal. Phew. <laughs> it's also worth stating that Loftus is an extremely divisive figure in her trade and American public consciousness. She lost her job at the University of Washington during what has come to be known as the Jane Doe case, where Loftus was accused of privacy invasion during an attempt to rebut claims made in a notable repressed memory case. She was exonerated of all but one charge, but it remains a schismatic verdict. She also appeared as a defence expert during the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Ted Bundy, so make of that what you will. But despite all that... The idea that memory can be fallible, to say the least, isn't especially provocative. Take, for example, a phenomenon known as the Mandela effect. Basically, the phenomenon of sort of mass collective false memories. And it's named after this sort of group of people who, um, when Nelson Mandela passed away in, in 2013, were a little bit shocked and surprised because they thought he'd passed away in prison in the 80s. So I think at that point, they sort of all came together online and offline to say, hang on, didn't he already die? That's the voice of Amelia Tate, a writer who specialises in investigating the nooks and crannies of the internet. Back in 2016, she wrote a piece about a movie called Shazam, which, like My Tin Compass, caused a lot of people to start questioning the fragility of their own brains. So it's, it's called Shazam. And it features comedian Sinbad as a genie. And so many people, sort of even before the Mandela effect had become sort of the term had been coined, had sort of gone online to say on Yahoo Answers or on Twitter or things like that, oh, does anyone remember this movie with Sinbad in? Um, so it was, it, was, it was a collective false memory, but it was also so individual because you had organically all these people remembering this film. And they also, you know, it was very detailed. People would remember the sort of video cover, the main plot points, the other actors and things like that. What are the kind of hints of why people have this quite specific shared memory? What are the, what are the things that their brains are short-circuiting on? Yeah, so I mean, the key fact that I sort of dropped halfway through the piece a little bit cheekily is that another movie at the same time 
was released called Kazam, which had the same sort of plots, the same sort of vibe, the same sort of colourings on the on the VHS cover, which was about a genie and these children, which is what sort of so many people believed Shazam was about. So, I mean, I think the most logical answer, if you're inclined to believe the most logical answer, is that the, the two memories are conflated in people's minds. But the people who do remember Shazam are like so vocal in denying this, in denying that they're confused. But I I understand why they, a similar movie called Kazam, I understand they got the the name wrong, but why they all collectively swapped, I think, was it Shaquille O'Neal for Sinbad the Comedian? This is, I mean... Right. I mean, it's interesting. I guess there are, you know, a number of arguments that you could say of, of why people might conflate people but it is interesting that it's something that's followed Sinbad around in his career before again before these forums because I found a tweet from him from 2009 where he said something like everyone stop asking me about this movie I wasn't in this movie which kind of hints to the fact that people must have been asking him like in real life when they met up with him they feel I think the fascinating thing about this phenomenon isn't just that we we have false memories but that we can be so passionate about them and, and people can log in every single day to talk about them and argue about them and and try and find confirmation that they're right and that their memory is real. In the end, my trust in my own memory is beaten by my cynicism. I simply don't believe in the scrambling abilities of Earth energy. I suspect that I have probably allowed my brain to short circuit and compound a memory of a crappy Christmas cracker compass with suggestions that lays can disturb navigational technology. My childhood home was probably not the Bermuda Triangle. Probably. Before we get properly into this subject, it's worth me offering a potted glossary of some of the key terms in this area. Dowsing is the practice of searching out underground water, lays or energy currents, essentially things that are invisible to normal people or equipment. Historically, it was done with a Y-rod, a forked twig usually of hazel or witch hazel, but nowadays it's usually done with L-rods made of metal wires. Geomancy, meanwhile, is a method of divination based on the study of the earth and its parkings. Both these terms interact heavily with lathes, a word that was coined by the amateur archaeologist, always a good sign, Alfred Watkins, to describe the straight alignment of ancient sites, albeit in a seemingly random scattergram around the country. But all of this begs the question of what exactly lays are. It's perfectly conceivable, perhaps even preferable, to go your entire life without giving any thought to what a lay is. In all likelihood, that's been you until this very moment, living a blissfully lay-free life. But for some people, it underscores their very existence. I taught myself, actually, to doze, uh, having read a few books on it. You know, this was back in the early 80s, you know, there was all the sort of start of the, the new age, if you like, rhyming with sewage, as uh, Tom Graves was out. The, the one that really got me going was Tom Graves' book, Needles of Stone. And he sort of talks about uh, standing stones being a form of earth acupuncture and, you know, a lot of the ancient sites being constructed on these uh, particular confluences of earth energies. And that was the one that really inspired me to, you know, mutilate a pair of coat hangers with some wire cutters and make myself some angle rods and uh, go out and uh, prove to myself I could, I could do this. And could you do it straight away or is it? Yeah, pretty much. I tested myself. I found a, a, a well that was close to the top of a hilltop and uh, doused around the well till I seemed to find uh, the water line that was uh, coming in and, you know, went and did a few tests on that and followed the line. So, yeah. Out on the edge of East Grinstead lies the Ashdown Forest. An ancient heathland sat upon a ridge on the high weald. It is a forest of contrasts at times densely wooded and at others giving way to a scraggy kaluna, more reminiscent of the moors and highlands of the north. 
For the public at large, it's most famous as A.A. Milne's inspiration for the Hundred Acre Wood in Winnie the Pooh, and is still home to a tourist trap called Pooh Bridge, where day-trippers down from London throw sticks in the water for some sort of transcendental literary experience. It's a romantic place that looks and feels ancient, something especially rare in manicured southeast England. And it's perhaps no surprise that for generations of dowsers and geomancers, the Ashdown Forest has been seen as something of a nexus for the earth energies that run through the crust of the land. So amongst locals, it has a reputation as a place where you might well bump into the ubiquitous, barber-jacketed, chocolate-lab-owning rambler, but you might just as easily bump into someone like Graham Gardner, hunched over a twisted coat hanger, trying to get a tune from the murmurs of the earth. It is also said by many, including a local musician called George Brinkhurst who wrote the song Meridian Line, that the source of East Grinstead's strange lure is its position on the prime meridian that runs from the Royal Observatory in Greenwich down through England, France, Spain, Algeria, Mali, Burkina Faso, Togo, Ghana and finally Antarctica. Meridian line, yes it runs right through you No matter if you're east or you're west it is the point zero for human perceptions of time. To the east, time zones run with positive figures to indicate that they are further on in their day than the merry folk of Greenwich. To the west with negative figures, as Americans sleep through Europe's petit déjeuner. It is said by some that this line, which, it's true, does bisect East Grinstead with surgical precision, creates strange magnetic disturbances, the sort that might attract the prongs of a coat hanger to wellsprings, might compel the construction of ancient monuments, might make the needle on a compass spin. So a meridian is an imaginary line that extends from the North Pole to the South Pole that goes through your position. And it's quite arbitrary, really. You can set one up wherever you are, as long as it goes through those key points. So whichever observatory you go to in the world, you'll always find astronomers using meridians to align their telescopes. That's the voice of Louise Devoy curator of the Royal Observatory at Greenwich. There's nothing particularly special or scientific about the Greenwich Meridian per se. It's just that we've made a very human decision to designate it as the prime meridian, zero degrees longitude. And that all stems from a conference that was held back in 1884, because by the sort of mid-19th century, lots of different countries had their own national observatories. And it just got really confusing. If you bought a map from France, then the prime meridian went through Paris. If you bought a map in Brazil, it would go through Rio de Janeiro. So if you're trying to do international trade, it's just impossible. So that's why they decided to have a conference with various delegates from different countries and to try and decide on one meridian that everyone could use to avoid confusion. There are about sort of four contenders. So Greenwich, Paris, Berlin and the US Naval Observatory in Washington. They were all thought to have the most accurate instruments that were necessary. But in the end, it was a pragmatic decision to choose Greenwich because over 70% of shipping companies were using British charts based on the Greenwich Meridian already. So it was the, the less stressful option. The Prime Meridian runs down. I mean, it runs through various countries. A lot of people seem to think that, well, not, not a lot of people, some people seem to think that certain things like ley lines and energy currents and sort of things are in some way related to this idea of the prime meridian. You know, I don't know whether you encounter that in your work at the observatory, people having a degree of mysticism around the this idea of a sort of zero point for time. Obviously, you would presumably say that's hokum. <laughs> yeah, so I, I haven't heard the debates about ley lines and so on. I think 
there's quite an emotional response. I think when, when you're standing on that line in the courtyards at the observatory, you do get that sense of where you are on the planet. And we have the names, all the different cities across the world, like Beijing or Washington or San Francisco. And you do get that sense of I'm here and for my friends in this place, they're so many degrees longitude or so many hours and so on. So there is that emotional link, definitely. And I think also when you look at the map, I've got family up in Lincolnshire who live in Louth, which is one of the towns on the Prime Meridian as it passes through the UK. So there is that sense that I'm here and they're directly north, so a few hundred miles on the same meridian. So there's that common link, but it's I guess it's more of an emotional human construct than, than anything else. But out on the Ashdown Forest, the history of the British Empire's shipping charts hold less importance. The Prime Meridian might just be a drag-and-drop line on Google Maps, but that won't convince those who believe the land is riddled with unplottable currents. Ashdown Forest is full of interesting individuals and it's full of different potty spiritual groups. And the whole question as to why East Grinstead Forest Road has become a centre of alternative community, alternative thinking, alternative spirituality has been one that's been intriguing me all my life, really. That's the voice of Richard Cratemore, a geomancer based out on the forest. He and his partner Jules perform professionally a comprehensive set of dowsing adjacent tasks, from space clearing to house readings to soul coaching. I grew up in East Grinstead, and I've had contact with quite a lot of individuals from quite a lot of the different spiritual sects that are headquartered around East Grinstead and Forest area. How did you get into geomancy? Did you start your geomancy journey in the Ashdown Forest? No, I actually started, I was doing geography degree, and we did a field trip to Avebury one day, and I started asking why. What's the technology behind standing stones and stone circles? What are they about? Basically, they're temple structures of some sort, but there's more to them than that in terms of the very specific placement of standing stones. I started devouring all the books on geomancy that were coming out in the 1970s, and I cut a forked hazel twig from my parents' hedge one day and learned, taught myself to douse. I've been exploring all sorts of aspects from dowsing earth energies through the water dividing through later on to therapeutic work doing earth acupuncture. Richard and Jules were also responsible for the creation in 2000 of a stone circle at Beech Hill in the heart of the Ashdown Forest. There are thousands of these megaliths in Britain, the most famous being the ancient atypical examples of Stonehenge and Avebury. But most are not UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Most are humdrum, garden-variety stone circles built to demarcate the spiritual importance of a place. Most look like Richard and Jules' stone circle, nine slabs of limestone protruding from the ground like a gaping buck-toothed moor. Think about who the most second most famous bear in the world is, referring to Daniel Right, Who's the first most famous? Paddington? The Great Bear. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure where Paddington Bear was born, but Winnie the Pooh was born in Ashdown Forest. Um, we built stone circle up here in our land in Ashdown Forest 20 years ago now. This was long before I latched onto the importance of the Greenwich Meridian somewhere. But intuitively, when I was sitting with one outlier stone, which was like a dynamic stone circle, I just felt to align it to the North Star. There's something in the energy field, the information field, the spirit of place that encourages artistic and literary creativity. These archetypes kind of pop up into the mind. I remember when, when we started building our stone circle, we took as our sacred text in the first morning the chapter of the expedition to the North Pole, the Winnie the story. And I looked around at the nine friends that had turned up that day to start building the stone circle. And each of the characters in the Pooh stories were archetypally represented by the different personalities who arrived that first day. Were you sort of Christopher Robin? 
I made the natural Christopher Robin and taught some rallies. I think it's fascinating that Sussex was the last English county to convert from paganism to Christianity. It was it was the very last place. The more you look back at the history of Sussex, you realise that although today it's effectively a you know Haywardsy East Grinstead, I really I'd call them dormitory towns. Really, most people there commute to London, and and it's a very respectable place. Is that the history of Sussex is really quite brutal and very pagan? That's the voice of Mark Heal, brought up in Sussex. Mark lives out in California now and spent much of his career in the music industry. But in 2015, he published a book called The Sussex Devils about the strange case of a man named Derry Knight. Knight was a self-proclaimed Satanist, indeed a self-proclaimed senior voice in a cabal of Satanists who had penetrated to the heart of British society. From there, he became notorious for extracting large sums of money from Sussex's rich, paranoid landowners on the pretext of destroying satanic memorabilia and other objects of dark extraction, whose provenance was known only to Derry. The story, when Mark revisited it many years after he had left the area, rang uncanny bells. Well, when I was growing up in Sussex, when I was, when I was young, before my, my parents found evangelical religion, we, we, we saw Danehill in those days, in, in the, this would be the late 70s, the mid-late 70s, was, I think, like a lot of the Sussex villages, very sleepy. There was still a very much a sense that uh, the old agricultural past of Sussex was with us. The local church was important in a way that I think probably would be hard to believe now in the sense that it was a social hub as well as a, a religious hub. The local priest was part of the fabric of the, the village community along with the pub and everything else. Then I think things started to change in a number of ways. I think that in the late 70s, a lot of the local churches became goosed up by the new charismatics, as they were called, the the new charismatic evangelical uh, Christianity, which was sweeping the country at that stage. Uh, My parents left the Church of England, which was an extraordinary thing to do, really, at the time, and joined a new church. When you heard about or re-encountered the story of Derry Knight, it was a sort of process of then going back and re-examining what had happened in your youth? It was many years later, this was in 2012, I rediscovered this story and I realised that I personally had pushed aside because of, because of the bad experiences which I had had. And when I reread the or rediscovered the Derry story, and I'd, I'd saved a couple of old newspaper clippings, which I'd completely forgotten about from the 80s, I decided to go back and relook at it from the perspective that I knew very closely the Bakers, who were, who were the family, the family of the Reverend Baker, who, who was the, the rector of Newick, and who, who was the guy, the priest who had helped Derry and had gone and found Derry money from wealthy local Christians. And the, the money which he had raised for Derry was to get Derry supposedly out of the, the occult, which was supposed to be a, a secret Kabbalistic organisation, which operated uh, throughout the UK, including having members in the very, very highest circles of the British government, cabinet members, senior civil servants. This was the story. To get Derry out of that, uh, the clutches of that organisation involved prayer and support, but also buying and destroying items of 
cursed or powerfully imbued uh, regalia, which were integral to the occult organization, the satanic organization, and, and that this was why this was why Derry said he needed the money to help him buy these artifacts and then destroy them. Now, now the, the story was that that. Here was just some dumb priest who'd been hoodwinked by a, a con man, and how could he be so stupid? And this was the this was the sensationalist gloss which the press gave it at the time. Now I knew the Bakers, and I knew that wasn't the case. I, I knew that uh, the, the Reverend Baker was a, a highly intelligent person. Nevertheless, he'd he'd been caught up in this in this tale, and I, so I went back and tried to relook at it with the knowledge that I had. Well, first of all, with the obviously the distance of time and the perspective that that gives, but also the knowledge that I had of, of him, who he was, the, the bakers I'm talking about, and, and re-look at it and try and get to the bottom of the truth. Was it a real live issue within the, the church, this, the grip of Satanism, or was it sort of a, one of those weird paranoid moments? No, it was very real. The, the late 70s and the, and the early 1980s, or the, until the, in, indeed for most of the 1980s, there was a real moral panic about devil worship in, in the UK. And it's hard to credit now how seriously this was taken. It really started, I, I think, from the, the US import of charismatic Christianity, which came from America. And this, this was fed really, uh, partly from you know, tabloid press sensationalism, who kind of loved it because there was you know, an excuse to, to print pictures of salacious you know semi-naked girls dancing around you know oh, again there was a, there was definitely a, a tinge of sexuality to this but also from from the evangelical churches because their view was that if you say that god is real god is working miracles here today in sussex he can heal which was something they claimed he can he can cause you to give a prophecy you know foretell the future then the corollary of that really was was that the devil himself is also real and that he also has powers which are which are real and although they never ex- expressed too strongly what those powers might be it, you can see that it's an easy leap from talking about healing and god working miracles on earth to feel that well, well so can the, the the devil also you know a belief in cursed scepters and rings and all the rest of it is much is a much easier leap once you start to believe in 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 the reality of a personal good then the reality of a personal evil is the other side of that coin so this was exploding in sussex at the time this evangelical religion and with it came that belief that the occult was a real and present danger The clue to whether becoming a Satanist is a good idea has, for me, always been in the name. But paganism itself holds more ambiguous meanings. For some, it's a before and after thing. Britain is a Christian nation now, before that it was a pagan land. Where it's only defined by what it's not. It's not little churches and country vicars with tufts of flyaway white hair. It's not prayer books or kneeling cushions or parish fates or till death do us part. Then, for others, the word pagan will conjure images of Stonehenge emerging from the Wiltshire fog or the Cern Abbas giant with his great knobbly shaft pollinating the hills of Dorset with his primeval fertility. For Dav the Bard, however, it is a box that he's looking forward to ticking at next year's census. You can keep your devil, I'll dance with Pan. 
I think that Pagan is going to be a option that we can tick on the next census. I mean, and there we go. There we go. That's what's happening. You know, Pagan is now a, a tick box on, on the census form. You know, can, can you believe it? Dave from the 80s would never have believed that. When I first speak to Dav, the name that pops up on my screen is David Smith, which sounds less pagan than Dav the Bard. Part of Dav's journey into this belief system has involved refashioning himself in the law of paganism. Well, it started obviously when I was at school and uh, all of my friends were into football and stuff like that, that I was into music and that music led me into heavy metal. So all those people like Tipper Gore back in the 80s who said that uh, that heavy metal could get you into magic, well, she was absolutely right. You know, I was a typical teenager. The walls of my bedroom were black. My, my duvet was black and everything. And I really got into into magic and I was always into into the supernatural into ghosts into mysteries I guess you would call them they really used to turn me on and that led me into a ceremonial magic order during my 20s and then I became far more interested in the stories of this land the myths of Albion if you like I was born in Cornwall so I had a a strong connection to the Arthurian stories and I also became fascinated with the figures of Merlin and Gandalf and the Forest Sage and so I started to look for a kind of indigenous spirituality I I really wasn't interested in Christianity for me it felt like I I could not connect to it. it felt like it was from somewhere too far away So that search then led me to paganism and I found, I explored Wicca, witchcraft, and then I found my home in the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids and Druidry and that that, uh, path of the forest sage opened up in front of me and I stepped on it. That was in 1994 and I haven't looked back since. I've been exploring that forest ever since. And what does it mean if you were giving the elevator pitch for paganism in 2020? What does that mean? Well, you know, this is one of those things I'm going to have to caveat it that you had 50 pagans in a room, you get 50 different answers. But I think there's a there's a huge swathe of common ground amongst most pagans. And that is a love and respect for nature. But it goes beyond that, because, of course, a gardener has a love and respect of nature. And what I think it is, the thing that kind of X factor that makes it a pagan connection is the idea that nature is sacred. There is a spirit, an awareness a life force within nature that humans over the centuries have become more and more separated from by all the things that we say, capitalism, all those things that have gradually made us separate from nature. The idea that we are dominant over nature is something that is completely anathema to pagans because the pagan path, if it does anything, it tries to place the human back in as a human animal, as part of the natural world. So that when we see a a human-made lake, for instance, we don't see a human-made unnatural lake. We see it as a lake made by human beings who are just another animal on this planet. We just think we're different, but we're not. We're just another animal. That all sounds very common sense to me. I sort of wonder then why 
we aren't a country of you know 50% Anglicans and 50% pagans. Why is it? I'll give it time. <laughs> why, is, yeah. why is it still a relatively sort of fringe um, belief system? I think if you go back to the 80s and 90s, it was fr- very fringe. I mean, if you if you opened up a issue of the Sun or the or the News of the World, they were constantly trying to tell everybody that we were sacrificing goats and all this nonsense that was coming out at the time. But over the years, you know, it, it, it is becoming a little bit more mainstream and accepted. And we hold open rituals at the Longman and have done for 20 years, every six weeks for our eight festivals of the year. And we're part of the community up there now. People just go, oh, the Druids are up there again. You know, and gradually that perception of weirdness that was so readily reinforced by the tabloid gutter press is going. What makes um, this area so interesting for you as a as a pagan as a as someone interested in earth currents and energies oh so many things so many things so sussex has a long history of magic and folklore and i think that part of that connection and part of that wishing to reconnect is is a looking at, at your roots and of and of the roots of the land itself the stories exist in the land itself, and they are there for everybody who, who is on this land. When I hear Dav talk about paganism, I am struck uncomfortably by the good sense of it all. The contrast of Sussex's pagans with the local Scientologists is particularly stark. This is not a faith based on a book of science fiction requiring such suspension of disbelief that Eisenbard Kingdom Brunel would give it up as a lost cause. This is a communion with the Earth, and the Earth is the nearest thing we have, scientifically, to a deity. It was there before us, it will be there after us, and, not to come over to Ecclesiastes 3, it is where we came from, and to where we shall return. Nothing reminds me of my childhood quite like thunder. Was there more thunder in the 90s? It certainly felt like it. Whilst I was writing this episode, we were struck by an absolutely beautiful thunderstorm. The kind we got back in the days when Tony Blair was in Downing Street and TikTok was just a glint in the milkman's eye. Of course, I immediately ran outside with a microphone. I love thunder. It's a reminder that we're not in control, that we're only here by the good grace of certain pressure systems not exploding us. There's something primordial about it. It instills in me the same momentary reverence for nature that I imagine that pagans like Dav and Dowsers like Richard feel all the live long day. And out there... Under skies that are fulminating with a power and an impetus that is totally out of reach to humans below, the magic of places like the Ashdown Forest is plain to see. It is the powerful effect that cessation of control has on humans, whether they're filling their mouths with opioids or ball gags, that reminds us that for all the glossy veneer of civilization, we will always be subordinate to the raw potency of nature. And I think that's kind of nice. This has been episode three of The Town That Didn't Stare, written, produced, and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The intro and incidental music is by George Jennings, and the end credits music is by Matt Payne and Ollie Lloyd at Shipyard Audio. You also heard an extract from Sabbat by Dave the Bard. On this episode, my interviewees were Graham Gardner, Professor Elizabeth Loftus, Amelia Tate, Louise Devoy, 
Richard Cratemore, Mark Heal, and Dav the Bard. This is the fourth part of a six-part series, available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. The Town That Didn't Stare is a Podo podcast. For more details, visit podopods.com. Thank you.